Hebrews 11, what a great chapter of the Bible. Um, If you've been with us over the last handful of weeks, you'll know that we just finished a series through the Gospel of Luke that we did, and we were looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus together for months, and we've now concluded that series in the Gospel of Luke. So I want to really quickly give you a flyover of uh, things to come, a preview of coming attractions, where are we going um, in God's Word in the weeks to come. Um, Today we're going to start this short, really just two-week series on the theme or the subject of faith and talk about that together. And then after these two weeks on faith, I'm actually going to have Ryan McGinnis preach for us on a Sunday. Um, Ryan actually preached at our um, monthly prayer and worship service last Wednesday night, did a great job. And listen, if if you're not coming to that yet, I I just want to encourage you. Every month, the first Wednesday of the month, we gather together midweek, and it's a night devoted to worship and to prayer. And I'm telling you, God's doing something special there as He's uniting our hearts and we're seeing the very things that we're praying together for as a church on those monthly Wednesday night meetings happening in our midst and it's so exciting and so uh, mark that in your calendar set yourself a reminder the first Wednesday of every month we gather together for prayer and worship but again Ryan did a great job there and he's going to preach for us in a couple Sundays and then after that happens we're going to start an expositional study through 1st Timothy And so we're preparing that right now, working on that, but we'll be teaching through 1 Timothy over the the next few months. And so that's what we have to look forward to. If you want to start reading 1 Timothy, it's six chapters to kind of just get your heart and mind in that portion of Scripture. This morning, though, we are starting a two-week series on faith. So faith is the thing that we're going to hone in on, that we're going to zoom in on together in God's Word. And we chose Hebrews 11 for today's sermon text, because that is the theme of Hebrews 11. In fact, the word faith appears some 24 times in this single chapter of Hebrews. And what I want to talk about in these first three verses related to faith is this. First, I want to talk about what faith is. What is faith? What are we talking about when we use the word faith? Second, I want to talk together about what faith does. Because I'll have you know, faith does accomplish something. And so what does faith actually do when we have faith, when we express faith? And then third and finally, we're going to talk together about what faith is in. What is the object of our faith? So let's take these in order now. Let's begin with what faith is. Look at verse 1 of Hebrews 11 again. Let's slow down and consider these words. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Now, what is faith? As simply as I can put it for you this morning, and then we'll flesh this out a little bit, faith is trust. Faith is trust. The word assurance there, used in verse 1, is a word that was used at the time that the New Testament was written of the title deed that you would receive on a piece of property in a business transaction. So so think about that, a title deed. The title deed is not the thing itself, right? It's a piece of paper. It's not the land that you're buying. So it's not the thing itself, but what does it do? Well, it gives you assurance 
that you actually own or possess the thing in question, the piece of land. Or to shift it away from land to another illustration, think of the pink slip on a car. Okay, When you get a pink slip and it's signed over to you, that's not the car itself, right? But the pink slip does something for you. It gives you confidence, assurance, or faith, you could use that word, that the car in question actually belongs to you and that you're going to take possession of that car at some point. So faith, again, is trust. And I want you to notice what else we learn about faith from this verse that really helps us to get our minds around this concept of faith. I want to point out to you that, and this is so important, church, by definition... Faith deals with things, and some of you aren't going to, you're not going to like this, but it's true. By definition, faith deals with things that we can't be 100% certain of. By definition, when you talk about faith, you're talking about a realm of things that we can't be 100% certain of. Notice again from verse 1 that when we talk about faith, we're dealing with things that are, what does it say there? Things that are hoped for. Things that are, as of right now, actually not seen. We're not not dealing with the things that we're touching right now or holding right now or seeing. When we talk about the concept of faith, we're dealing with things that are out ahead of you. Things that you're hoping in. Things that have presumably been promised to you. So we're not talking about things that we can be 100% certain of in, I guess, sort of a scientific way. For example, if you and I were out hiking in the Los Padres forest, which is large, and we're out there and I get to a point in this hike where I go, I have no idea where we're at right now. And I'm thinking to myself, I have no idea how to get back to my car. But if I'm hiking with Justin, who's an Eagle Scout, and I look at Justin and I say, man, I'm lost. Do you know where we're at? Justin goes, oh yeah, I got this. I've been doing this since I was like five. No big deal. I'll figure this out. If I say, okay, I have faith that you're going to get us out of these woods. There's no 100% guarantee that Justin's going to get us out of the woods. I couldn't possibly know that at the point that I'm saying to Justin, I have faith that you're going to lead us out of the woods. After all, he's not infallible. He could think he's going to get us out of there, and maybe he leads us further into the woods. Or God forbid, he gets struck by lightning or some other catastrophe falls on Justin right there, and then there I am, left in the woods with no guide. So at the moment that I look at Justin and I say, I have faith that you're going to get us out of the woods, there's there's really not a 100% guarantee that he's going to get us out of the woods. But if he's an Eagle Scout, and he is, and he's military and all that, I I do have a lot of confidence, and therefore I put faith in him that he's going to get us out of the woods. So by definition, and we need to understand this, that by definition, when we talk about faith, we're dealing with those decisions in life that we can't be 100% certain about. And this brings me to the second thing. Now, although most people don't like it put this way, Everybody has faith and lives by it every single day. Everybody. Now you might have joined us this morning and maybe you consider yourself an agnostic or maybe you're an avowed atheist this morning and you don't think of yourself as a person of faith. That's okay, but I want you to know 
that you do operate in your life with faith. And you do it every single day. We all do. For example, every single time I step foot onto an airplane, I am taking a step of faith. Because when you stop and think about it, there is no 100% guarantee that I'm going to get from point A to point B in one piece. And so what I'm doing when I get on an airplane is I am putting faith in a number of things. I'm putting my faith in the pilot and his or her ability to get us from our destination to where we're going, or from our, where we're at to our destination. I'm putting faith in a mechanic that I've never met. That this mechanic had the skills to go through that aircraft and analyze all the parts and make sure everything is in proper working order. I'm expressing faith in an air traffic controller that I've never met. Hoping that they're not sleeping that morning on their job. Hoping that they have the competence to direct all of the traffic in the skies that morning and make sure that every plane is going where it ought to go. We're expressing faith every time we step on a plane. Or every time you purchase food from a grocery store <laughs> or eat in a restaurant. Guess what? You're expressing faith. You're exercising faith. When you buy groceries in a grocery store, you are trusting and you are having faith that the food was handled properly. You are trusting that the expiration dates that you see on your food items are accurate. You are trusting that nowhere along the process were dangerous or life-threatening chemicals added into your food. You are trusting that the food didn't actually open up and become unsealed at some point and all of a sudden the store is like, well, seal it back up. We still got to make a profit off of this. We're trusting in all of those things every time we go and buy store things from the store. None of us are able to verify with 100% certainty that the food has been handled properly. Or one more example, every time I've ever gone to a dentist or a doctor for an operation and they've put me under, they've put me to sleep, that's a faith choice. I'm expressing faith in an anesthesiologist I've never met, that they're going to give me the right dosage, not too great of a dosage. Putting faith in a doctor or a dentist who's going to operate on me, that they're going to do the right surgery and they're going to do it properly and do it well. And on and on it goes. You can see that all of us are making faith decisions over and over and over again in our lives, literally on a daily basis. The difference then between a reasonable person and an unreasonable person is not whether or not they're a person of faith. The difference between a reasonable and unreasonable person is whether they let facts inform their faith or not. Going back to the instances that I gave a moment ago, in each of those scenarios, it makes sense to express faith there. Again, even though I have no idea with absolute certainty that the pilot can get me to where I'm going safely, there's a really good chance that they will. So we can call that decision reasonable faith. Why? Well, when you look at it statistically, air travel is very safe. Much safer than traveling in our cars, actually. And so we can have a high degree of confidence or certainty or faith that we're going to get from where we, want, where we are to where we want to go safe and sound. Now, of course, up to this point, I've been talking about faith in general. But when we're talking to our skeptical, non-believing neighbors and family members, they're really questioning religious faith. 
It's not necessarily faith in general. It's religious faith. So what about that? Well, I believe that religious faith ought to operate the exact same way. A lot of people talk about the idea of blind faith, right? And they kind of accuse religious people of living their lives by blind faith. Blind faith is not really faith at all. Blind faith is in all honesty, stupidity. Blind faith would basically say this, I have no reason whatsoever to believe that God exists. I have no reason whatsoever to believe that Christianity is true, but I'm just going to believe it anyway. Church, I I would hope that none of us are living our lives that way this morning, That, that this is just all wishful thinking and that there's really no reason whatsoever that we believe the way that we believe. There's Nothing virtuous about a blind faith. When we think about religious faith, our question ought to be this. Is my faith reasonable or is it unreasonable? In other words, is the Christian worldview the best framework for us to view the world through? Is it better, a better way of understanding the world than any other worldview? Now, you probably already know this about me, but I believe that it is. Otherwise, this would be a terrible career choice for me, right? But, but I certainly believe that the Christian worldview is the best way to make sense of all of the things that we do know about the universe that we live in. All, all the things that we know about life and its experiences. Christianity seems to make the most sense out of all of that. The problem that a lot of secular people or irreligious people have, here's the mistake, is that they falsely assume that all faith is unreasonable. That all faith is unreasonable. They claim that they only believe in things that are verifiable in a laboratory. They say things like, I don't trust anything that can't be proved with my senses. They're sort of like Nacho Libre's poor friend Stephen where he said, I I don't believe in God, I believe in science. And that's how a lot of secular or irreligious people are. And, And people like that oftentimes will pit faith and facts against each other, as if the two things are mutually exclusive. And so they'll kind of talk about people and they'll categorize everyone in one of two camps. They'll say, listen, there are people in the world like me, I'm a secular person right now, speaking, there are people in the world like me who base our lives and make all of our decisions based on facts. And those people are viewed as smart, intelligent, reasonable people. And then they'll say, and there is a whole other batch of people that exist in the world who base all of their decisions on faith. And those people are usually characterized as being um, less intelligent, less reasonable, gullible types of people. But like I pointed out, Regardless of what they say, no one can live their life without exercising faith. Everyone makes tons of decisions every day on the basis of faith. Decisions they could never verify in a lab or through tedious research. So when they come to the question of God's existence, or they come to the questions of religious faith, the question shouldn't be one of faith versus non-faith. The question should be one of reasonable faith versus unreasonable faith. After all, 
No one can prove that God exists with 100% certainty. But at the same time, nobody can prove that God doesn't exist with 100% certainty. Why? Well, because we can't test God in a laboratory. We can't look under a microscope and go, hey, everybody, come here. I'm about to get the Nobel Prize. There he is. God is in my Petri dish right now. And at the same time, we have no ability to go and poke our noses around every crevice of our universe and look and go, see, he's not there. Or there's God. To complicate matters even more, we certainly have no hope of getting ourselves outside of our universe to see, is there a God out there? And of course, the biblical vision of creation, that's exactly where God would be. God is not a part of the creation. Actually, God is outside of it. And so there's no way for us to say, there he is, we found him, in the sense that secular people would want proof. So we have to look at what we can know. We have to ask whether God's existence is the most reasonable explanation or not. Yes, faith deals with things that aren't seen. Faith is dealing with a world of realities that can't necessarily be tested. But just because faith is unseen, it doesn't mean that faith is unreasonable. And that's the key. Every single decision, every faith decision has to be evaluated on its own evidence. And if the evidence stacks up, then we place our trust there. So what is faith? It's trust. It's confident assurance. Second, what faith does. We talked about what faith is. Let's talk now about what faith does. And point two and three are going to come a little more quickly than point number one did. Look at verse two. For by it, we're talking about faith again, for by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Their commendation. What does it mean to be commended or to receive commendation. Well, the word commendation means approval. So if you're being commended, it means you're being approved. So this verse is telling us that that faith is the thing that brings God's approval. Now, it's interesting to note this, that the antonym of the word commend, which means approval, is the word condemn which means to pronounce a sentence on somebody, to say guilty. And so we learn from that if if faith is the thing that brings God's approval of us, then unbelief is the thing that actually brings God's judgment, God's condemnation on a person. We see this down in verse 6. We didn't read this yet, but look at Hebrews 11.6. Here's what the author writes there. He says, and without faith, It is impossible. Do you see that? Not less possible. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Do you see there how faith is the thing that brings God's approval, God's good pleasure into your life? It's about faith. And the Bible very clearly teaches this, that faith alone is the thing that can save you, that can bring you into a place where God looks at you and says, okay, that person is actually pleasing to me. 
Romans 3.28, we read this, For we hold that no one is justified by faith. I'm sorry. For we hold that, this is why it's important to actually read the verse properly. I was about to get myself into all sorts of trouble. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Paul there is saying, look, if you want to be justified, if you want to be declared righteous before God, it comes through faith and not some obedience to God's law because we're not going to live up to it. And I want you to notice that that wasn't just some new idea that the Apostle Paul came up with. Faith has always been the thing that brings God's commendation or God's approval. See, look again at verse 2. Here's what he says. He says, For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. The people of old, he's looking back at the history of God's people. He's looking back at the patriarchs of the faith. People like Father Abraham, and he's saying, hey, guess what? Even Father Abraham found approval from God, not because of what he did, but because he believed, because he trusted in a faithful God. In Romans 4, that's the exact argument that Paul makes that Abraham This father of our faith was actually justified by faith. He says in Romans 4, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now back to verse 6, Hebrews 11.6. I want to look at it one more time. He says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Stop there. Church, I need you to come along with me right now because this is so important for us to get. Would you please take note that in Hebrews 11.6, where we're talking about faith, the author here points out that there's really kind of two parts to this idea. What does he say? He says, on one hand, we must believe that God exists and, there's an and here, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek Him. In other words, biblical faith, saving faith, is actually more than just believing that that God exists. It's actually even more than believing that Jesus of Nazareth lived a righteous life and that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross and that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, excuse me, rose again from the dead. Did you know that the demons believe all of that and tremble? There is no confusion in their minds that Jesus is who the Scriptures say that He is. But the demons aren't going to be saved. Biblical faith is certainly believing that Jesus is real, right? That He exists, that God is real. But it's actually more than that. It's also trusting, believing, having faith that God is going to deliver on everything that He has promised to us in light of who Jesus of Nazareth is. It's huge. And it's a world of difference. There are a lot of people walking around our city right now who if you questioned them on the street and said, do you believe in Jesus? They would say, sure. But what do they mean by that? For many of them, they believe, well, he was a historical teacher and a historical figure and a great moral teacher. Or if they're a Muslim in our neighborhood, they're going to say, I believe in Jesus, but they believe that he was a prophet. Saving faith comes when we believe 
that Jesus is who he said he is and who the scriptures say he is, but then that we entrust ourselves to him to deliver on all of the promises that he's made in light of who he is. One of the best illustrations that I've ever heard for this is about a man named Charles Blondin. Maybe you've heard of him. He was known as the Great Blondin. This was a man in the 1800s who was a world-renowned tightrope walker. Um, he was French, but he really made his, his name internationally known and he made much of his fortune when he came to the United States and he did an incredibly daring feat, which is that he actually tightrope walked over the Niagara Falls, the Niagara Gorge, 1,100 feet. And he walked across that on a tightrope. The crowds began to swell, and some estimates say that upwards of 25,000 people would gather around to see him doing this because he started doing six, or he did it once, and then he started doing more and more of these feats. And to kind of keep the crowds engaged, he started actually adding theatrical variations to his tricks. So evidently, what they say is that he would walk across it blindfolded. He began to walk across it on stilts at one point. He carried a person on his back at one point. He even took a wheelbarrow and he crossed the Niagara Gorge with a wheelbarrow that he was pushing in front of him. And on that day, disclaimer, allegedly, let me say that word. So don't go find evidence to the contrary on Wikipedia or something and then send me an email this week. Allegedly, okay, um, what happened is on the day that he did the wheelbarrow trick, there were a bunch of people watching he went across with the wheelbarrow and he came back and the crowd went crazy. And so he looked at the crowd and the great Blondin said, how many of you believe that the great Blondin could cross the Niagara Gorge with the wheelbarrow with a person inside of it? The crowd went even crazier. I do, I do, of course you can. Because, right, I mean, if you're there, you're like, I want to see somebody get in that wheelbarrow and see him do this. So the crowd goes crazy and everybody says, I do, I do, I do. And then he looked at him and he said, who will volunteer? The crowd fell silent. And see, that's a great illustration of the difference between believing and really believing. Right? There was nobody at the Niagara Gorge on that day who was wondering, is the great blonde and real? They could see him. There was nobody at the Niagara Gorge that day who was wondering, can this guy cross on the tightrope and get back or not? They'd seen him do it many times with all these iterations of how he would do it. But when the rubber met the road and all of a sudden their own life was in danger and all of a sudden he was calling them to entrust themselves to him and his skills, that was a different question. And the same sort of thing is going on when the Bible talks about faith. When the Bible is calling us to be a people of faith, it's not just saying, oh, I believe. It's saying, I am going to entrust my life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to actually step into the wheelbarrow and believe and trust and have faith that Jesus is going to get me across to the other side. And that's a whole world of difference. And when you make the decision to get into the wheelbarrow, it actually reorients your entire life. It impacts the way that you live. And it transforms Everything that you are doing. So faith, what does it do? It commends us to God. When we step into the wheelbarrow, so to speak, God is pleased with us. 
But when we exercise unbelief, when we say, I'm not going to trust that God will do what he has said he is going to do in the gospel, it actually brings condemnation. John 3.18 puts it this way, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Third and finally, and let's wrap this up, what faith is in, look at verse 3 again, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things, out of things that are visible. Notice that the author points out that when we apply our faith to the creation of the universe, our faith is in the Word of God. Or to be more specific with you, our faith is in the God of the Word. He's looking back at the Genesis account of creation, where when he says that the universe was created by the word of God, what he's, what he's referencing is that God actually spoke the universe into existence, created it out of nothing. And so he's saying that by faith, we're actually believing in that God who spoke this universe into existence, that, that the object of our faith is none other than the God of the word. See, faith is not an object itself, okay? I can't right now put faith before you and ask Uva to come up here with a tape measure and we kind of go, okay, these are the dimensions of faith. This is how much it weighs. This is how faith feels. We can't touch it. Think about all the illustrations we've used this morning. No, no, faith isn't like that. You You don't touch faith. Faith is actually placed in something else, right? Faith is a trust. It's a firm confidence in something outside of you, something else. The Eagle Scout hiking buddy, the airplane pilot, the doctor, the platform I'm standing on right now, the faith is in something else that it's going to hold. So faith is always placed in something else. And as Christians, God is that something, or should I say someone else. He is the one that our faith is in. And because of that, we trust that all of God's promises are yes and amen. One of the most important things, family, to remember in Hebrews chapter 11 is not the amount of faith that each of the characters in Hebrews 11 have. It's to remember the object of their faith, who their faith was in. A lot of people call these historical figures that are detailed down through Hebrews chapter 11 that we didn't read about. A lot of people rightly call them heroes of the faith. And they are heroes of the faith. But here's the key. The real hero of Hebrews chapter 11 is the one in whom their faith rests. That's why the conclusion to this whole chapter, which is called the Hall of Faith, actually begins in chapter 12 and it points to none of those Old Testament figures. It actually points to the Lord Jesus Himself. Hebrews 12.2 calls us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, you need to know that each of these heroes of the faith had major faith blunders in their life. They had major lapses of faith in their life. 
They had major examples of disobedience in their life. Noah got drunk. Abraham took matters into his own hands. Samson was sexually promiscuous. And David was a murderer. But even in their weakest moments, their faith was always in the right place. And some of you this morning need to hear this. Because some of you spend day after day, week after week in your life, looking inward and going, I can't measure up. God could never accept a person like me. God could never use a person like me. I could never be described as a person of faith, a woman of faith, or a man of great faith. Look at my failures. Church, I want to tell you something. Looking at yourself and looking at your failures is part of the problem. God is not calling you to look at yourself and how much faith you're mustering up. God is calling you to look beyond yourself at Jesus who is perfectly faithful. Listen to me this morning. The most important thing about your faith is not the amount of it. It is the object of it. Again, the most important thing about your faith is not the amount of it. It is the object of it. Jesus had enough faith for all of us. And Jesus lived His life perfectly faithful to every single commandment of the Father for you and for me, so that by faith we could be united to Christ. And now when the Father looks at you, if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, He looks at you and He says, faithful. Faithful. And He's pleased with you. And He commends you because of Jesus. The goal of this two-week series is not necessarily to try to make you great people of faith, although that can become a byproduct. The great goal of this series is to point us to Jesus. To help us to have lasered in focus on Him. Seeing that Jesus, again, is the one who is perfectly faithful for us. It's to point us to the one true God who is there, who is faithful, who is reliable, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And my prayer for all of us through this two-week series is that God would give us enough faith to continue to carry on for one more day, one more week, going onward in this journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Maybe this morning, as you've joined us, you, you recognize that you've never even taken that first step of faith. That you've never put your faith in God. You've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe as we've been talking about who God is, what God has done for us, maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking to yourself, why wouldn't I jump in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> If that's who Jesus is, if Jesus lived the righteous life that I couldn't live myself, and if Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago as a substitute for my sins so that God would wipe my sins away, and if Jesus rose again from the dead and He's alive forevermore, and He offers Himself as a Savior for me, why wouldn't I trust Him to do that? If you're sitting here this morning, and that's where you find your heart, I want to let you know that before you leave this church today, you could put your trust in Jesus. And that simple act of faith from a heart that really trusts 
that really wants Jesus, that really wants to follow God is enough. That God's going to look at that sort of a heart and he's going to say, approved. Approved. And he's going to begin to work with you from this day forward for the rest of your days, molding you more and more into the image of his son, Jesus, filling you with his spirit and setting you on a brand new trajectory and course in your life as a new follower of Jesus Christ. And you can do that here today, turning to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I put my trust in you. I'm going to rely on you and I'm going to begin to follow you from this day forward. So if you have not done that, I'm encouraging you this morning, do that. Put your faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful that when it comes down to our faith, that we're not putting our faith in objects that are capable of letting us down but that we are putting our faith in the eternal God of this universe, the only being in all of existence who is always, only, ever faithful. You have never once come up short on a promise that you made. All of us have failed promise keepers, but God, you have never once failed. Everything you have ever promised, you have done. And you promise us here this morning if we continue to put all of our trust and all of our hope, not in ourselves, not in something else, but put it in Your Son, Jesus, that we'll have forgiveness of sins, that we'll have everlasting life, that we'll be children of God, that You will be with us and for us to the end, and that You'll give us Your Spirit to walk with us from this day forward. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would right now in this moment again, if we're Christians, would just grasp on to You in faith that we'd never let go, that our faith would grow stronger. And of course, Lord, for any that have joined us this morning who have never made that decision, I pray right now would be that moment that in the quietness of their own heart, they would be saying, yes, Jesus. You're the only one I want. You're the only one that can save. And they'd begin to walk with you from this day forward and walk with us together on this journey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.